0: Been to Ely before in England? Okay, DPC will fund our trip to Ely. (laughs) Two train stops up from Cambridge. If you go to Ely Cathedral, you will not think your last name is weird. You'll think it's special. Uh, Well, we're studying the life of David. Still in that, we've been doing that for the winter and the spring, and uh, we're getting toward the end. He is an old man now, and we're going to look in First Chronicles twenty-nine. This morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin, First Chronicles 29. Since we started off with A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that's a Martin Luther song. Let me, let me start off with a, a Martin Luther story. You know how Martin Luther got into a religious vocation? Because that was not his original track. He was actually studying to be pretty much what we would call an attorney, a lawyer. Since you don't know what the word attorney meant when I first said that, I said lawyer. Just to clarify that, I'm following up. He was studying for that, and he was walking, and he got caught in a storm. And you, and you might appreciate this after you know, the, the one that came through a few hours ago. Uh, lightning struck right beside him when he was walking uh, on the road, and it terrified him. And he yelled out to St. Anne, and he said, I, I'll become a monk. And so he entered an Augustinian monastery. And uh, it was real embarrassment to his dad, Hans Luther, who, who had, him on a, you know, had him on a track to be a successful um, lawyer slash attorney. Well, uh, anyway, so he, he does his studies and he goes through, you know, goes through the, all the preparation to be, to, to be a monk. And so when he was ordained, he was going to lead in his first mass. He was going to lead his first. So this is, this is a big career moment for him. And uh, so his parents were there. And even though he's not going to be a lawyer's dad, you know, maybe like my son, the monk, you know, he's proud of him. And so Luther describes when he is, he's leading the mass, he's consecrating the host and he's praying. And right when it was time for sort of like the high moment of the Eucharist, he just froze. And his lips started quivering. Now, you know, if his dad is already embarrassed about he's not on the career track he wanted him on, this is extremely embarrassing. And it actually angered his dad. And Luther wrote about this later. He said that he was about to pray these sort of set words in the Mass, and then the words are We offer unto thee the living, the true the eternal God. And Luther said, at these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. Shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Now, do you understand what happened to him? He was using a set formula that anyone, probably who had been through the Mass for years and years, would know. He had been trained to say those words. And the content was solid. But at that moment, what happened? He experienced them. He experienced the content. And you you can't predict when that's going to happen. You can't even make that happen. But sometimes it does. Like, for instance, we pray the Lord's Prayer here like we just did. And you may have had the experience if you've been here or maybe somewhere else and you were praying the Lord's Prayer. And you can pray the Lord's Prayer a thousand times on autopilot, sadly. I've done it. But maybe at some point you've been praying the Lord's Prayer and you hit the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, those are familiar words. They're so familiar that it can stop you from really thinking about what they mean. What do those words mean? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means, God, please forgive me in a way that corresponds to how I forgive people. Now, you'll know you're on something if you've ever been about to pray that and kind of gone, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know that I want him to do that. It's kind of a time bomb he put into the Lord's Prayer. But, but when that happens, you're, you're experiencing it, even though you need the content already. Now, I, what, what I want you to look for in this passage is David is saying solid, devout Israelites. He's praying it. And then right in the middle of praying it, he experiences it. You can just tell. Um, The context is that he's old. He is about to hand the kingdom over to his son Solomon. He had other sons, and Solomon is not his firstborn, but Solomon is the chosen one. So he's about to hand the kingdom over to him. David wanted to build the temple, still not built, uh, God said, no, your son Solomon's going to do that. And so they're amassing the materials, valuable materials, to build the temple. And when the, materi- when the materials come in, he leads the Israelites in prayer. First Chronicles 29. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. With riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord... God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. Direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are the privileged ones to get to read and hear what you have said and what you've done. So uh, help us to steward this privilege and open us up to you, overcome our resistances to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When, uh, in 2008, when we had just finished renovating this building, or we were, we were about to finish renovating this building, we, uh, we, we asked for a local resource to help us just think about being in this part of the city. And uh, we had a gathering one night at uh, some church members' houses, at Colin and Valerie Martin's house, with uh, Beth Templeton, uh, who was just sort of um, one of the main people at United Ministries, the ministry that we support here in town. Well, uh, not long after that, she came out with a book called Loving Our Neighbor. And I want to read you something from the beginning of this, this book. She quotes from a newspaper article that ran in the Greenville News. This was several years ago. And here, here's how she describes it. She says, our local paper ran an article about a young college graduate who decided to hop a train from Raleigh, North Carolina to Charleston, South Carolina, with $25 in his pocket. Within six months, he had saved $2,500 and had a furnished apartment. This young man's story reinforced his belief that if a person would just apply himself, get a job, stick to a plan, then life will turn out okay. And uh, I, I looked it up. The name of the article was, Young Man Started from Scratch, Learned Some Priceless Lessons. Now, here's what she goes on to say. The real story of the newspaper article was not that the young man made it. After all, he had a college education. He was white and good-looking, and he understood middle-class ways of thinking and acting. He did not come from poverty, where the rules of the middle class are unknown. Reading between the lines of the news story, his family was stable. He knew how to speak in formal, educated English. No one in his immediate family was an addict or mentally unstable. He could interact with employers because he intuitively understood their language, their rules, and their values. Charleston, the community of his experiment, had an adequate public transportation system. He had no medical emergency. Of course he was able to succeed. Now, it's very interesting, Sa- same body of information. And from one perspective, this is, you know, this is a test case. This is Exhibit A about you can make of yourself, you know, make anything of yourself. Th- this, this is a great country, and it is a great country. But her perspective of, was that's not the real story there. The real story was he showed up with resources that stacked the deck. Now, the question is, how did he have those resources How did he come from a family without mental illness? How was he white? And maybe not just middle class, but upper middle class. How was he educated? And, of course, the further you back it up, it it has to be things completely out of his control. Again, I don't assume this of everybody in the room, but from a biblical perspective, vantage point, the answer is, is pretty clear. It, it all came from God. The things that made that possible to happen, for it even to happen, to even bring those resources to the, to the table, all of that came from God. Now, just tuck that away. What's the passage about? The, the two big things that are happening is that the kingdom is about to transfer from King David to his son, King Solomon. Again, not the firstborn. That's not the natural way it would go, but Solomon is the chosen ones. That's the first thing. Second thing, the temple, the temple, kind of a wonder of the ancient world, is about to be built and they're amassing the materials to do that. This is a high watermark in in Israel's history, in their experience. This is a a big time. And something happens when it all comes together and they celebrate before the Lord. So here's what I want to look at. First off, The excitement, there's just, I mean, you can tell that from the passage. There's excitement. There's joy and happiness. Excitement, and then clarity, and then the response, okay? Excitement, and then clarity, and then the response. Now, now what's the excitement? First off, look at, just look at some of the numbers here. And I I, want to say this on the front end. You can... You can demonstrate that in First Chronicles, sometimes numbers are not used literally. It is possible that the numbers that are given here are just to convey huge amounts. They're not to be taken literally. The more I've looked at it, I would take it literally. I mean, the same way that, that a thousand in other books of the Bible, like Revelation, probably doesn't mean literally a thousand. That can be the case here. But I, I'm going to take it literally. David says this, all right, I have provided for... It's great the things that he calls the temple. Did you catch the different things he called it? He calls it the house of my God or the house of Yahweh. He calls it the holy house. And that doesn't mean like the religious house. That means it's the house set apart from all the other houses. It's going to be in the middle of our houses in Jerusalem, but this is a totally different kind of house. It's the holy one. But my favorite one, and he says it twice. It's in verse 1, I think, verse 1 and verse 19. He calls it the palace. The palace is the residence of the king. What is David as the king of Israel saying? There is a real king in our midst, and there's going to be a real palace in our midst. There's going to be an actual residence in our midst. It's the temple and God who's going to dwell in it. It will be his palace and should look the part, all right? So he says, for that, what have I brought together? He says, besides these things I'd already set apart, maybe just from Israel's resources, verse 3, in addition to all that, I've provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver because of my devotion to the house of my God. I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, all right? I ran the numbers on this. I don't do this kind of stuff often. do you, know you know how much a talent is? Because I think when you hear these biblical numbers sometimes, it can just kind of sound like the Charlie Brown teacher, just wah, 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 wah. A talent is 75 pounds. So 3,000 talents of gold is 225,000. It's over 11 tons of gold. So I ran the numbers on that. And uh, as of this morning, gold was trading over 1,200 American dollars per ounce. So in round numbers, $1,200 an ounce over eleven tons, that's that's about four point three billion dollars. It's a sizable gift. And and the the reason you know that is one where you have the giant like, you know, kind of board check, you know, handing it to the four point three billion. Uh the reason I'm inclined to take this literally is that there are people in our own day that that possess that kind of wealth. Like that's not unheard of. And so he gives that. Uh, It's a massive gift. He says, I do it uh, for the house of my God, and I give it to the house of my God. Now, then the people get in on this verse, and he he calls them to participate. Consecrate yourself. Who's going to be a willing giver, a free giver? Verse 7, they, these are like leaders of tribes, Israelite leaders, they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold. And it goes on to say they gave precious metals… And what we would call precious stones or jewelry, where did they get all this wealth? And it it must have come mostly from one source and maybe from two. Number one, from the conquest of other peoples, you know, loot from the wars and the battles that they had amassed personally. Where other parts of it might have come from, we don't know this, but I think it's worth saying because it's a strong possibility, is some of this actually started with the Exodus. That when they were slaves and they didn't have squat and they came out of the wilderness, God said, ask your Egyptian neighbors for something for your journey. And and God just inclined the hearts of the Egyptians to give them all this wealth and they plundered the Egyptians. So it's possible that when they're giving like this gold or this bracelet or this ring to the temple, it may be that that had been something from a Philistine battle. It may be something that went back way into their history that belonged to the Egyptians. And I'll just tell you, none of us own an antique that could compare to that value or that meaning for your family, unless you've got like a second draft of the Magna Carta in your attic or something like that. Nothing that we have could compare to that. So they give over the top sacrificially. Um, pretty remarkable. What's, what's the response as they do that? Verse 9. David gave, they gave. Verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they, had given will, because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. All right, here's the big takeaway it's exciting. They're doing great stuff, and it's exciting. And cannot blame them for that. They should be. But then you get this clarity. Look look down in verse 10, about halfway through. David is going to pray what sort of what we would call a dedicatory prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Now, I'm not going to read this whole thing. But verses 10 through 13 is what I would call solid, devout, Israelite orthodoxy. I don't mean like orthodox Judaism now. I mean like just solid, core, biblical, true, right, Israelite orthodoxy. What he's praying, he believes, and it's true. Lord, everything that we have comes from you. Totally true. Has to be that way because God is God. Then you get to verse 14. And this is the moment where it seems like he goes from uh, saying orthodoxy to experiencing orthodoxy. Because what does he say? Who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? All things come from you. And of your own have we given you. He's experiencing what he just prayed. You know, like, this, this has happened to us before. This is not to embarrass anybody because I think it's wonderful when it happens. You can't make it happen. But in our lessons in carol service that we have a few weeks before Christmas, we'll have church members read these same portions of Scripture every year. And just every so often, a church member will be reading the passage And as he or she is reading, they'll experience it. Like that sometimes they are moved to tears as they write about, you know, as they read from Isaiah that a day will come where God will make the wolf and the lamb lie down together and it's real. And that person experiences it as they're saying the words. That seems to be what happens to David, because on on the front end, he's praying a good, solid, kingly Israelite prayer, but something happened. And then listen to the kind of things he starts saying. Listen to what he says about where our stuff comes from. Now, he just said it already, but, but let me read 14 and 16 again. Verse 14, halfway through. All things come from you, he already said that, and of your own have we given you. Now, that's different. And then look down in verse 16. Uh, We have provided for building you a house for your holy name. Everything that we've done comes from your hand and is all your own. Now, it's one thing to say, God, everything comes from you. It's another thing to say, God, everything comes from you and is yours. Like, do you know why we're not good at hospitality? Southern hospitality, I say this as a Mississippian, former Mississippian, sorry, South Carolinian who grew up in Mississippi. Southern hospitality is event-driven. It's put-on-the-dog hospitality. Biblical hospitality is open your heart because you've opened your home. Do you know why we're not good at that kind of hospitality? Because we're willing to say, God, my house comes from you. My apartment comes from you. What we are not willing to say is, God, it is your house. And it's your time. And it's your food. That does not come naturally. Even as we really, really do believe, it all comes from him. It's harder to believe it's all his anyway. For me to bring someone in my home is not this great sacrificial thing because it's his anyway. Anyway. And then he says this, and this is, I think this is amazing. Verse 15, he says, We are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. I love that phrase, there's no abiding. That sounds like the Delta Blues. There's no living here. There ain't no living. And he's not saying this as, you know, Abraham who, who never settles down and just kind of has to go by faith that this is all going to work out, who doesn't really inherit the land and he's always on the move. This is the king of Israel in Jerusalem, totally established, at the end of his life, about to build the temple, kingdom's going into his son's hands, established, established, permanent roots, put your roots down right where he ought to be. And he says, we are strangers. There is no enduring We're staying here. There is no abiding. We are passing through. And then he said, and again, this is remarkable. When he started out talking to the Israelites, you know what term got repeated almost more than anything? Gold. Gold. I've amassed the gold, and we need the gold for the temple, and I've given the gold for the gold. Gold, 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 gold. And then, after this clarity, what word starts cropping up everywhere? Look in verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered. Verse 18. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. Direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart. There's an Anglican named J.C. Ryle. And he said it better than I've ever heard it said. He said, the heart is the main thing in religion. Not doing. And not even doctrine. And they're both crucial. But the heart is what God wants. And he doesn't need our hearts. The heart is the main thing in religion. Well, you know, we're... we're, We like singing the doxology here sometimes. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But have you ever experienced that? Have you ever gotten traction at work? Sometimes you work and you don't get traction. Have you ever gotten traction and sort of realized that you're very pleased with yourself? Traction comes from God. And when we do really, really well in our work, we are only giving back to him what is already his. But you know, and you know, what the, you know what the doozy is? Is just even being forgiven. It's like even having faith. We show our cards so bad when we get mad at non-Christians for not being Christians. We show our hand, we might as well lay the whole hand down on the table. It shows that deep down, I think, that there was something inherent in me that gets it. When everything in the Scriptures is saying there is nothing inherent in us that gets it, to get it must be given to you. He has to give you even the thing that he requires called faith. You ever had a moment where you realized, I'm mad at people for not having what I have because deep down I think I willed myself to have it through my cleverness. And I, I'll just say on that point, I, I can't say it better, <laughs> shocker, than Jesus. That, and I, the, the, one of the closest parallels I know to this in the New Testament is when, and hang with me here for a second because it's not going to sound like a parallel, and I think it is. Jesus sends out 72 people to go do ministry in Judea. And he sends them out two by two. And he gives them authority and power to do really cool stuff. Like, he gives them power to cast out demons. And Now, they may have seen him do that. They've never done that. And that must have been awesome. Like, if you'd never done that, to walk up to somebody possessed by a demon and say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, come out of her wouldn't you look at them and go, this is going to be awesome. I'm, th- this is, I'm about to get busy in this, in this town. So they come back, and they're so excited. And, it, and it, this is in Luke chapter 10. It says they come back, and they have joy. Just like this passage, they have joy. And Jesus says, oh, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I've given you authority to cast out demons and tread on serpents. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you have. Joy. I know you're excited. I, 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 know it, I know it was exciting. Do not derive your joy from the thing that you were doing for me, even when I sent you to do it and gave you the power to do it. Derive your joy that your name is in heaven, which had zero fingerprints of yours on it given to you? Uh, What's the response, briefly? They worship. David says to all the assembly, bless the Lord, and they do. And they sacrifice a ton of animals, which was inefficient and at some level wasteful. And they feast. What does it look like when you go from just like saying orthodoxy saying good doctrine to experiencing it, it usually looks like worship and then lavish obedience. Do you know how many thousands of dollars DPC has spent on getting good port for the Lord's Supper? We could have saved so much money if we use grape juice for everything, but we're not going to do that. I love seeing your faces when you take a sip of it because it tastes good. And no one makes a face when that, well, unless a child gets the wrong cut by accident. So make sure if your child takes if they've met with an elder. A no, little plug for that. Um, but it's worth it. He's awesome. And, and I, I would just say this in closing. Uh, there's, there's so much going on in this room right now that's up and around it and in it and, and underneath it. Like, when we get together on Sundays, it's, there's liturgy and there's theology. And there's biblical study. Uh, there's philosophy of ministry. There's spiritual formation. There's all this stuff going on. And there's so much to think about. What is the main thing that you need to know when you come here? And I'll just end with this. I'll tell you what it makes me think of. A friend of mine I went to uh, school with from South Carolina, he said his, his granddad used to say to his grandmother, so just like old World War II generation kind of guy, he called her mama. And he would, he would ra- all the family had heard him say this. He'd say, mama, I'd be nothing without you. You will know that your heart has been touched when you walk in here or when you pray or when you walk up to this table or when you greet each other, that, that the thing you know in your core is, Lord, I would be nothing. Without you, I would perish. Without you, I would be dead and lost. King Jesus. He wants our hearts. It is exciting to be able to do something for him. Let's not derive our joy from our doing. But that he's given us himself. Amen. Let's pray together.